today to introduce uh, today's speaker. Uh, I first got to know Joan Kuyak a couple years ago, and I think this is a testament to her uh, longevity and experience as a community organizer when I was working on an oral history project that interviewed Joan for work that she was doing in Kingston in the late 1960s on tenants' rights activism. Uh, she is here to, today to speak about something different, um, but um, it, I think it's a testament to sort of the commitment to community organizing that Joan Kuniak has uh, been a part of for decades now. Um, our speaker today, Joan Kuniak, was the national coordinator for Mining Watch for 10 years, 1999 to 2019. 2009. 2009. That's 20 years. No, 10, oh, 10 years. 10 years. I wrote down. <laughs> um, the book that she is talking about today Unearthing Justice, How to Protect Your Community from the Mining Industry, um, will be part of a book launch tonight at Novel Idea Bookstore at 7 p.m. Um, there, the book will cost $28. Here, you pay Joan directly, it costs 20 So hey, <laughs> that's a deal. And it all goes, uh, more goes to Joan. Um, so without further ado, I want to introduce Joan Kuyak. Uh, longtime community organizer, someone who I have immense respect for, and I'm so happy he's finishing off our fall term at SNAP. Joan? Um, it's always a little hard to know what to say when you're doing this because you know you've got a mixed group of people in the audience. And I was just wondering how many people here have actually seen a mine? Oh, a lot of you. That's great. So you can help. There's a couple of seats down in the front here, guys. Um, so I'd, I'll just, I'm going to do a little bit of elementary stuff about mining in the talk, so correct me if I'm wrong. I'd be happy to have that. Um, and just to tell you that I'm thrilled to be here today, and I'm pleased that SNIT has invited me, and thank you for the nice introduction, Scott. Um, I've lived in Sudbury for 30 years. I moved from Kingston actually in 1970 and lived in Sudbury until I went to work for Mining Watch Canada. And one of the things that happens in life is that where you live and what you do shapes who you are. So you develop a particular set of attitudes and ways of being that are an outgrowth of the place you come from. And um, I've lived in, Sud in Kingston for 50 five years and basically uh, left here um, to go live in Sudbury with my then husband and we worked and I worked at a variety of jobs and did a lot of different things and what always happened was that the the mining industry so dominated the town when we moved there it was the time of one of the biggest booms in Inco and Falconbridge's history and there was 30,000 people working on construction of the new mine shafts and stuff. I gotta tell you, it was a blast to be a young person in a mining town during a boom. Um, a lot of our friends were living in tents, they were renting out, cl the closets were being rented out at $45 a week. Um, but we were young and we thought it was great. And I don't think it was until about 1975 when all the layoffs had happened and the number of people working at the mine dropped precipitously. Um, and I ended up meeting people from uh, the Medewin tradition, Anishinaabe people who lived in Sudbury and started understanding something about the costs. 
And because I worked at legal clinics and as a community organizer, what, what you got every day was immersed in the costs, the terrible costs that these mines created in the community. And in some ways, I think I started working on the book then. That was when I, I realized that, that the mining industry, although it created the jobs and the incomes in that place where I was living, was not only creating those jobs, it was creating a whole other set of issues. And when I went to work for Mining Watch, um, I had a chance to research and find out an awful lot more. One of the things I used to say to people from the industry is I think I've heard more mining horror stories than anybody else in the country. So it certainly forms your mind. You have a particular attitude to it. And in the book I say very little about the number of jobs, the contribution to GDP, and the other things that the industry does. It does a really, really good job of talking about that themselves, and I had to make a decision about not um, repeating that in the book. It's biased. And these are the five things that I've come to learn about the industry that I think um, we all need to know when we're making decisions about whether we should have mines, expand mines, or about how we close them down. The first one, and I'll expand on these as we go through, is to say that mining is at the front lines of the colonial assault on indigenous people in Canada and around the world. If it's not mining extraction, it can be some other kind of extraction, but mining particularly tends to be at the forefront. Um, and it continues to be, it's not in the past. It's a waste management industry that depletes the very resource it depends upon. It provides short-term benefits and has long-term consequences. Most mines don't last more than 10 to 15 years. Um, if they last longer than that, it's usually because there's another mine that can be developed beside it. The true costs of mining are externalized. They're externalized to indigenous people, to communities, and to ecosystems. Where often they're not counted in dollars, and so they're disappeared. And our regulators have been shaped by the industry. The mining industry shapes how we think about it, what our discourse is, pays very little tax, and is very poorly regulated in this country. Whoop. To talk about um, the colonialism issue, I mean, Sudbury is located in the area of the Robinson-Huron Treaty. It's been Anishinaabe lands for millennia. And uh, in 1850, a treaty was, was signed with the tribes there because uh, copper had been discovered and, well, copper had been discovered through the indigenous people who lived there and there were miners that wanted access, miners and banks that wanted access to the, that copper and gold. The people who lived there had been seriously depleted by a number of smallpox and uh, typhus and, and tuberculosis epidemics that had swept through the area, often knocking off 75 to 90 percent of the population at any one time. So by the time the treaty was being negotiated, you had seriously traumatized people with populations that are much, much, much smaller than they were. Um, and the treaty, uh, amongst other things, um, said that they would pay people in, in the treaty area $2 per person based on the minimal, mineral wealth that was being extracted from the region. That was increased in, I think, 1860 to $4, but never increased after that. And the people, the industry itself says that over a trillion dollars in wealth have been extracted from Sudbury alone. 
Um, that has since ended up in the courts in the Robinson-Huron Treaty discu discussions. And in fact, they won the first level of the case. It was appealed by Ontario. And the judge, uh, Tricia Hennessy, who made the decision, uh, didn't talk about quantum. So they're back in the courts around some technical issues and talking about amounts. But it's also under appeal from Ontario. So that fight is still ongoing. And if you visited communities around there, um, you'd know that the ecological price they've paid for these mines is, is horrific. <coughs> Canada, as you've probably heard many times, is a predator on the international stage. Uh, we have huge amounts of assets in other parts of the world. Um, I'm not going to talk a lot about Canada's international mining presence with you today. That's not my area of expertise. Um, but there's certainly lots of information about it. But we export our model, and people in other countries will talk about wanting who don't know how Canada works. We'll talk about wanting Canada's mining model there. What I'm going to do for the rest of this is talk more about Canada's mining model. So for those of you who don't know, mining works through a sequence. And so when you're talking about mining, it's everything from geological mapping and exploration through prospecting and the staking of claims. <coughs> through um, determining through exploration whether uh, it's worth proceeding with the mine, to doing feasibility studies and finance, trying to get financing, environmental assessment and permits. If it makes it through all those things and the deposit is big enough, you'll get construction and development. And from the operations of the mine, you will get waste rock, overburden, tailings, and if there's a smelter slag, um, they will go through crushers and mills and other forms of beneficiation and then, and then you get down to um, refining and manufacturing and, and selling to markets and so on. Um, at the end you have some kind of finished product, which I, you know, I treasure. I use metals too, just like everybody else. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about these different parts. So first off, where do ore deposits come from? And I know for some of you this is a simplistic answer, but you only get, you have these metals all over the earth in various concentrations, but they're not usually economic to mine unless they're concentrated. When they're concentrated, that becomes, that's called a deposit. So you'll get, and what concentrates them is usually heat and rapid cooling and gravity. So you'll end up with deposits of the minerals we want where two tectonic plates have collided, where they've been moving apart, where there's been volcanic activity, and so on. And so deposits are concentrated in very specific places. And often people don't understand that. They are concentrated in various, various grades, various amounts. So sometimes you'll have really um, high-grade gold, for example, that might be 5 to 10 grams per ounce, per 5 to 10 grams. Um, Per, per ton, but sometimes in these days they're often mining ores that have a grade of 0.21 grams per ton. So as we've mined out the really rich deposits, we're increasingly mining out, we're going after the ones that are lower and lower grade. Um, the first step in finding those deposits is actually geological mapping. It's done by uh, magnetometers that fly over, by uh, geologists walking on the land by assuming things. And almost every country in the world now 
has some kind of geological map that prospectors use in order to find what they want. The first step in creating um, the mine is that they, actually I'm going to go ahead one, is that they stake claims. The, the prospector or the company that's interested in, in a deposit that's showing up in the geological mapping and so on will decide to stake claims. In Ontario, that's now all done on the internet. It used to be done with, you know, the prospector with his, his stakes and his cap. In Manitoba, it still is, and he, they go along and, and put in posts and then run to the assay office with their, their information. Now you do it on the internet, um, and, and uh, it means that you'll get these huge blocks. Every color is a different company, and that's in the ring of fire in, in northern Ontario. Um, so once they've staked a claim, which costs almost nothing and can be done by somebody who pays $25, is 18 years old, and has done it online, an online test that isn't graded, the, the development of a mine from that is based on what we call free entry. And there are some limits on this, but not many. And in, in Canada, the only place so far where there is a limit on the ability to stake a claim and a requirement for consultation with Indigenous people is in the Yukon. In the rest of Canada, the, a claim can be staked. And then the prospector, who's the company, um, can get access to whatever's there. And the first part of that is that the mineral rights, the rights to the subsurface, are separated from the surface rights. So there have been many fights here and in other places between people who have surface rights and suddenly discover they don't have the mineral rights. And somebody's staked their land and want to explore it, and um, they have very limited options for stopping them. A number of provinces say that they have to get the permission of the landowner before they can ent enter on the surface. But in almost all cases, the minister can override that decision, either in Quebec by expropriating the, the surface rights, or as um, in other, some other provinces, just by a, re a requirement that it happen. Um, so under free entry, all lands are considered to be open for staking and mineral exploration, unless they've been expressly withdrawn by law. So if something's withdrawn as a park, it may or may not prevent people from access to the subsurface right. The person who stakes the claim has the right to develop a mine on the claim. It's a first come, first serve basis, and that, frankly it's there because miners used to kill each other over the claims, and they wanted some way to sort out whose right it was. So there's no permit blocking for, say, bad actors, somebody who's abused their privileges and so on. And, and so free entry is, is still a problem in Ontario. Once you move on to the next stage, um, exploration, once you move on to exploration, then there is, in Ontario at least, a requirement for consultation with First Nations um, and the filing of some kind of plan for what you're going to do when it's over. Oop, that's the one I want. So, but what you need to understand is that only one in 10,000 claims become a mine. So, people who are faced with claims being staked on their land, like people are in the ring of fire picture we saw, are thrown into complete chaos. There's a few chairs down in the front, you know. I don't bite. 
the people who have this, these claims staked on their land are, are thrown into complete chaos. Communities start fighting with each other. The company's probably telling them that they've got one of the biggest gold deposits in the world on their land and they're all going to get rich. Um, or at least they're going to be able to pay for a new water treatment plant if they're an indigenous people. Um, and others are really concerned about the land. Uh, it, it becomes a really serious problem, and it gets worse as we go through these early stages in, in the mine. And in most cases, the deposit isn't going to be worth mining. It's not economically viable. But all this kind of chaos happens before that's established. Um, Early exploration, which is the first level, includes trenching the land, power washing rocks, taking big grab samples, um, building some roads in, and it can cause considerable damage. Um, and once, if they find something and they move to advanced exploration, then they're going to take in drill rigs and they're going to drill holes um, to see what's under this, under, in the subsurface. And they'll be drilling around what they see as the deposit to try and figure out if there's anything there. The more drill holes there are, the more clear you can be about whether there's anything there or not. Um, I've, I've seen companies like uh, Copper One and Barrier Lake Territory claim that they had the, the biggest, uh, biggest massive sulfide deposit in Quebec with, a, with no drill holes at all, so you never know. So just the impacts of mineral exploration are really high. And the first one to know is that most of the time, or a lot of the time, the people doing the exploration are not mining companies in the sense we know them. They don't have operating mines. What they're doing is mining investors. They're getting a whole lot of shareholders to invest, and then they use that to pay themselves quite well. Uh, $300,000 a year sometimes um, out of the shareholders until the money runs out or whatever. Um, and, and at the same time, they create all this chaos that I talked about in the communities. Um, some of those conflicts are irreparable. And certainly in northern Ontario, around the Ring of Fire, this has been a horrific, horrific issue. Um, it is also the moment, when the claim is staked, it's when the third party interest is created on indigenous lands. These are in many cases lands that um, the indigenous people do not think belong to the, the government, to the crown. And now they're put in a position where they have to include a third party in all their discussions, the mining company. And quite frankly, I don't think they've got any right to do that. It's, uh, it's horrific. And then there's all the environmental damages that go, go with um, exploration, especially when you get to drilling and, and uh, advanced exploration, which can include bulk sampling and so on. So I, that's what I'm going to say about exploration. The, the next step, it, there's, if they're going to develop a mine, um, there's different kinds of mines that get developed. There's hard rock mines that require a, this picture here. There's ones with an inclined shaft and slope, which can have a ramp that takes trucks down. And then, um, and then there's open pit mines. And they're different in terms of their costs and their development. Underground mines and, and uh, slope mines are an awful lot harder to develop and require ventilation and all sorts of things. They hire a lot more people. They also have the opportunity to put some of the waste back into the, the shafts and the levels that the others don't. Uh, and an open pit mine. 
Open pit mines will be developed generally where the grade of the ore is very low and you need to remove a lot of rock to get at it. Although these days there's a lot of combinations of, as some of the mining engineers here will know, a lot of combinations between underground and open pit. Mining is a, by its nature, is it's an expanding assault on the earth. So this is a picture of the Highland Valley copper mine in British Columbia. Um, including its tailings dam and tailings impoundment. And it, I mean, the mining by its nature is removing rock to get a metal out. So it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And a lot of people don't understand, I mean, it seems like a simple concept, but a lot of people don't actually grasp that. And so you'll, you'll get shown a picture of what the mine is going to be like by the company, but what it looks like 10 years later is just horrific. There's a, an interesting film made um, by APTN called The Gold Rush, and in it there's a, a Cree guy in Mysticini Cree guy driving a big heavy truck. He's one of those big Eureka trucks with the, the wheels that are higher than the building, and he, he's driving it and he gestures to the side and there's this huge open pit. It's the Troilus Mine. Troilus, I think, two kilometers long and a kilometer wide. It's just enormous. And it was built within a space of two decades, like it, huge. And he said, yep, that used to be my father's trap line. And I'm still sort of gasping at the reality of that, that it can go from being almost nothing to these huge things within 10 years, within 10 years. Mining is a waste management industry, and it, this is really important to know. You'll have the mine site, which has all sorts of things on it, explosives, factories, a camp, a, beneficiary, uh, a beneficiation outfit, a mill. It's going to have all sorts of stuff on it. And it's, it's built first, and then the mining starts. And when the mining starts, it's, it's going to, first off, it's going to remove what they call overburden. Overburden in mining parlance refers to the rocks, trees, well, the soil, the grass, the trees, the, uh, the people, the animals that live where the mine is going to be. The next thing that they're going to do is they've got to get at the ore body. And if it's an underground mine, it's because they've got a concentrated little deposit that they can get at by going down a, a shaft and going off to the side or going along a sill or something like that. In that case, the amount of waste rock, as they call it, that you remove to get to the ore body is less. In these new big modern open pit mines, however, you, you, have, to build, you have to build a pit that's at least, that's not much, much smaller, um, less grade than 45 degrees, because if you do it, the sides will collapse. So you, maybe you've got a little pocket of, of ore at the bottom of that or shortly under the surface, but you've got to remove all this waste rock, as it's called, um, to get at it. So some mines are as much as four to one waste rock. And you're talking about four to one in terms of the waste rock, what the French call sterile, which I always think is interesting, and, and uh, the ore body itself, which is um, the place where the, the ore is, and it's still going to have to be smashed up more. So they take the... They remove the waste rock, put it aside. It, it's got all sorts of issues with it. And then they get the ore out. And when they get the ore out, they send it to the mill and the concentrator. And it's, 
It's ground to a face powder consistency by steel balls and rods in these huge, big sag mills, and then taken to the, these flotation units in, in the, uh, the concentrator where they use gravity and various chemicals in order to extract the metal that you want. So sometimes those chemicals will be cyanide um, if, it's, if it's gold. It's going to be sulfuric acid probably if it's copper. Um, but there's a whole other reagents that are used there and all that becomes part of the waste. Once you get the gold or the copper or the nickel out, then you pump the waste, which is now this powder in a slurry um, with, to a tailings impoundment. The waste rock is usually used to build the roads and the, and the dams around the pond. And the slurry is pumped into there and has to be maintained forever. Um, I, what happens if, if you don't keep it under water or keep it under clay or do something else with it, if it's got sulfides in the rock, it is likely it'll interact with <coughs> the ground up surfaces are now exposed to air and to water and they, there's a bacteria that will work on them that creates something called acid mine drainage. This is a pretty extreme example. But it, acid mine, once acid mine drainage starts, it's hard to stop it and it, um, it can continue forever. Some rock, all, and the problem with the acid, the sulfuric acids created with that process is that it takes the other metals that are in the waste and and leaches them out of the rock, and then it, it'll drain into aquifers and water systems and so on. So the, the protection against acid rind drainage becomes one of the puzzles that mining engineers have to struggle with all the time. It's really, really serious. And in old mine sites like Sudbury, it's a really horrific problem. There's other problems too, but that's... So I, this is the Highland Valley one we talked about. Their tailings impoundment is nine kilometers long. One dam is 3.3 kilometers across. And it's 165 meters high. And they're planning to increase the height of the dam. I think it's to 240 meters or so. And increase the area. It's in an old valley in the mountains. Downstream from that is a number of communities and people who, if the dam ever went, they're toast. It's gone. Um, and it's a... Uh, it's a marvel of an engineering struggle with all sorts of attendant <coughs> problems with it. Um, in Sudbury, there's, tailing, there's one tailings impoundment, the Central Management Tailings Facility, that is 35 square kilometers in size. And one of the dams on that is considered high risk, according to the Canadian Dam Association. The, uh, the company Valet has another one in Thompson that also has a very high risk uh, dam. And uh, serious. And if the dam goes, you get Mount Pauly. Um, in August 14th, 2014, 25 million cubic meters of tailings broke through the dam. It was built on clay, as it turns out, GLU clay. And uh, the dam slipped, and they it went pouring down and destroyed Hazeltine <coughs> Creek and ended up in Canal Lake. Um, no, nobody, thank God, was killed, and it isn't acid generating, so. It could be a lot worse. And in fact, Valet, the company in Sudbury, um, had a two collapses in Brazil in 2015 and 2019, and they're in danger of having more. Um, 
and over 252 people died in the last one. And it, it's from iron mines, um, and uh, it, it's horrific. But that's the consequence of it. There are people um, who study tailings dams who, who like to say and say that every one of these uh, saturated water dams is really, really dangerous. And there, the hearings on Mount Pauly, in the hearings on Mount Pauly, the independent engineering panel that looked at it, who were really reputable mining engineers, said that that kind of saturated tailings should never be built anymore. And there are alternatives to it. They can filter the tailings, but it's expensive and companies don't want to do it. And they've been permitting mines in northern Ontario and, and BC that don't have that kind of tailings. Um, the, so you can go through the operations and stuff, but the other place where there's really serious issues is around abandoned mines. Once the mining company is losing money um, and the ore is running out, which it does because you're chewing it up, you're using it, um, you end up with an abandoned mine. And my, my uh, idea of the worst one in Canada, maybe even in the world, is uh, the giant mine in Yellowknife. It only operated from 1946 to 1996. It's right, Yellowknife was built around it. I mean, that's what happens with colonialism is that they... The, you get the, the extraction and then the settlers move in to mine it and then it becomes the town of the settlers and the indigenous people are pushed out. Um, An abandoned mine, the giant mine is built on what used to be the major blueberry picking area for the Yellow Knives Dene. They'll never be able to do that again. Um, after, after it went bankrupt, it um, with a number of things on the way to the bankruptcy, which I don't have time to talk about, it was discovered that there were 237,000 tons of arsenic stored behind the, the bulkheads in the, in the shafts. Because what they'd done with the arsenic is they, it came, the arsenic came from, from um, milling and, and roasting arsenopyrite ore to get the gold out. But to get the gold, you have arsenic trioxide left behind. We have the same problem actually at Red Lake in Ontario. Um, it's not as much. And uh, the, the plan that they finally came up with for it was to create a series of thermosiphons around this huge amount of arsenic and freeze it in place. It's only, the community had to fight like crazy, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later, to get it, that to be only phase one. They couldn't figure out how to get it out without endangering workers in the community. And so these thermosiphons um, are there to freeze it in place. The other thing I want to talk about before I move on from that is the sm is smelters. This is uh, the Hud Bay smelter. It's now closed. It was on the it's on the Manitoba Ontario Manitoba Saskatchewan border. And in fact, the tailings impoundment is in Saskatchewan, and the smelter and the mines that were there um, are on the Manitoba side. They, when it was operating, it was the largest um, lead and mercury emitter in North America, and it's left behind um, a huge legacy in terms of mercury contamination. This is a, an Environment Canada slide, 100,000 parts per billion of mercury in the red area there. Snow Lake is one of their mines, they're still operating there, and, uh, and there's serious mercury contamination problems there too. 
In Sudbury, where there was 125 years of mining and smelters and refineries and tailings impoundment, um, there's all sorts of legacy issues from the smelters. Um, and and around, there, there's Valet in Sudbury, and the other company now is uh, Glencore. Um, but I, I did some work on, on how we're, the government and well, pub, the public is protected against a spill like we were talking about or contamination from Valet. That's the central management tailings facility that I was talking about. Um, the cost, Valet says, of remediating all of, all of its Sudbury operations is $330 million. I can tell you that that's just total underestimation. And the, if you add in these other properties that I mentioned here, it comes to $548 million. And frankly, in Ontario, Valet gets to self-assure. The, the financial assurance for Valet is a line on a subsidiary's balance sheet. They call it an asset retirement obligation, and that's what we've got. Now, it is the only company in Ontario that can self-assure, but since the spills in Brazil, they're now at junk bond status. They don't have much money. So it's, it's very, very disturbing. So, so they must pay billions in taxes, right? I remember going to a Senate committee hearing and this senator was getting more and more angry at what I was saying. He said, well, they pay billions in taxes. That was in 2001. And Jack Mintz, who's a, a noted conservative uh, economist, had just done a research on the mining industry and found that they, in fact, paid the lowest taxes for any industrial sector in the country. Um, and so I, I did some work on it, and I thought I'd just give you a, an example from that Hud Bay smelter we saw. In 2018, Hud Bay declared profit of $171 million U.S., about $225 million Canadian. And that's their declared profit. God knows what their real profit is, but that's what they declared. And of all the taxes they paid, they have to do this on a, on a website called Estima. They, to Manitoba, Snow Lake, Flin Flon, and Creighton, they paid less than 7% of that pro declared profit to those communities, the ones that are most affected and are living with the the mercury contamination and everything else. But their named executive officers, about five guys, made in that same year 13.8 million Canadian. So if you look at it, I mean, they almost paid their five executive officers almost as much as they paid in taxes. I mean, it's absolutely shocking. If this was a junior company, they'd be paying their mining NEOs large sums and no taxes because they don't have any profit. It's called a, it, it BEPS, it's a base erosion profit sharing systems that they use to try and avoid having any profit to pay taxes on. They paid no, Hud Bay has paid no payments to indigenous governments in Manitoba, none, none. And they have a reclamation security for all their properties, and I don't know what form it's in, of $200 million. I mean, that's, if there's ever an example of regulatory capture, as we call it, that's it. And frankly, if you start looking at any of the mining companies in Canada, you're going to find the same thing. It means going through their financial statements and comparing it to the estimate amounts and then looking at what company, what uh, First Nations declare. But it's, it's really horrific. It's part of the work I do, and I, 
I, I'm always, I almost can't believe it. I do it and I think, this couldn't be true. Really? Really? So anyway, that's, that's it. So the, my basic position, I guess, is that we've got to re demand respect for the huge costs of these minerals we take for granted. I didn't even talk about workers' rights here. When I was in Sudbury, when the, in, in 1980, there, 81, there was a whole a huge set of layoffs again. And at that time, two-thirds of the workers at, at INCO, which became Valley, were leaving on disability pensions. And the company couldn't even spend the interest on their, on their pension plan because people died so soon after, after leaving work. They're still, I mean, they like to say it's one of the safest industries in the world, but they don't look at uh, chronic illness. And in fact, industrial disease and death is a big part of this. So I'm going to just quickly talk a little bit about how we protect what we cherish. Jacinda Mack, who's a Nuskamata, who's a, a Sequentmouth uh, leader in, in British Columbia, talks about her work being a love story. It's about what we love and how we cherish it and how we protect things so that our children won't have to carry so much. And an awful lot of people end up becoming mining activists and not wanting to be. I often start talks when I go places by saying, I'm so sorry you had to become a mining activist. Their land's been staked, somebody's got brain cancer, uh, they're dealing with an abandoned mine, and they don't know where to go. And they discover that they have to become an activist because they don't know, they have to do something about it. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how people organize, because it's different depending on what you want to do and what the context is. And I, I guess I cut my teeth organizing in Sudbury. This is a Google Earth picture of Sudbury. There's that massive tailings in town that we were talking about. These are lakes that people swim in. Um, they're making a big do these days about cleaning up the, this long way here, I guess. They're, they're making a big do about cleaning up some arsenic from an old mine in, at Long Lake, but it's pretty small compared to the rest of it. Um, some of that's housing, but an awful lot of it is uh, tailings impoundments and waste rock dumps and smelter mines. That doesn't show the uh, adjoining area where, at Falconbridge where there's just as much. Um, when you want to organize in a community that has become so totally dependent on mining, it's really hard to do anything. And there's a number of reasons for it. The first one is that there's a huge discrepancy of wealth and impoverish, impoverishment. I, miners make good money because nobody will do the work if they're not paid well, right? Um, it's the same with people in Fort Mac. People do the work because they're going to get enough money to make it worthwhile. Um, but what that also means is that there's an awful lot of people in the community who don't get anything. So the, the Anishinaabe people who were displaced were some of the poorest in the country. Um, and I worked as the program coordinator for a project called Better Beginnings, Better Futures for 10 years, where we were working with one of the poorest communities in Ontario. Remember, a trillion dollars worth of wealth taken out of here. And I'm working with one of the poorest communities in, northern on in Ontario um, in the Donovan flour mill, that picture you saw at the beginning. It's very hard to negotiate with an existing mining company because nobody wants to take over that mess and nobody wants to lose jobs. So a company was, oh, we're just going to pick up and leave if you make us, uh, if you don't give us the water permit, or if you don't let us discharge tailings, or if you don't let us do this or that. And people cave. I mean, it's just too intimidating and frightening. 
there is generally amongst people who live in the heart of those kind of communities and work in those industries, you cannot afford to think a lot about how much you love nature because you're destroying it with your work, right? So I know amongst our friends, when we were younger, and I think it's still true, it's really hard to keep being respectful of what your nature when you're hurting it. And um, one of the responses to that is just to make sure you drive over it as fast as you can in your new ATV. It's a, you know, it's a really difficult thing. And it, as again, you're shaped by what you do and how you do things, and, and it, it makes a difference. Around Sudbury, there's some of the most beautiful countryside in the world. I think Killarney is the most gorgeous place I've ever seen. But for years, it was being poisoned by acid rain, and nobody in Sudbury wanted to do anything about it. And now you see the same stuff in the fossil fuel industry, where the people who are have become dependent on those things for their jobs can't afford to think about climate change. It's too hard on your conscience. It's too hard on who you want to be. There's all sorts of studies that show that drugs, alcohol, and recklessness are big issues in mining communities. Um, they sure were when I was there. And, and uh, I, you know, there's a tendency to blame um, the ill health of people who live in places like Sudbury on their smoking and drugs and alcohol. But frankly, even in communities where, where that that, that's the case all over, and Sudbury still came out as having the highest cancer rates in any metropolitan area in Canada. Um, there's a lot of denial and fear. I didn't know, for example, when I was in Sudbury, that the orange sand I was carefully digging into my garden was tailings. They'd used tailings as fill, and I, the grass was dead when I moved in, and I started digging this stuff over. I didn't know about tailings. And, uh, I didn't actually want to know when I started finding out because it would mean that I'd been poisoning my kids with my garden. Now people do the right thing with tailings in Sudbury. They spread lime by the bucket load on the ground and it, it does uh, moderate it. But people don't want to talk about it. Um, it's always a problem when you're trying to organize on environmental issues in, in these communities. And the time they did the Sudbury soil study in 2000, the Ministry of the Environment did a study that took 8,000 samples. And uh, when we tried to raise issues about what we were finding, um, we were fought even by the local food group because they wanted, they thought that it would be better to be growing your own food than, than not, and they didn't see an alternative. And the other thing that happens if you're trying to organize in those communities, you can't get any information. You, you really count on people who work in the industry telling you stuff um, because you, it's really, really hard to get it, and there's, um, it can look very open and transparent, but who, how it's, the information is developed, and if any of you are doing research on mining communities, you'll know how hard it is to get that stuff. And, it, and getting enforcement, even when you do have proof, can be very, very hard, too. So that's organizing in a mining-dependent community. Where there's abandoned mines, like Giant, um, the, the people there, I, I actually think this guy, who's now a, a member of the Legislative Assembly, Kevin O'Reilly, um, did more than almost anybody else. Uh, Kevin started talking with his buddies. He, he, when he moved there, he was working for the Dene Nation, and he could, you know, he could see the mess, smell the mess, and he's a bulldog of a guy. And he, he just started getting people together, and they started, you know, chesting and talking to the Yellow Knives about it, who were really, really suffering. Um, 
And, but in order to get something done, you had, he had to go beyond Yellowknife. Kevin was one of the founders of Mining Watch Canada. He uh, worked with a group, set up a group called Alternatives North um, that works with the Dene people who live there. Um, and he helped start a national movement around abandoned mines. Uh, there was the National Orphan and Abandoned Mines Initiative that we helped start with uh, the Mining Association of Canada. He bought, they brought people together to educate them about it. They researched like crazy, just digging, 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 digging. Um, and they had to, they finally got uh, awareness about the issue and then the, the proponent for the environmental assessment was the, uh, the Ministry of the, uh, Diane, the uh, Department of Indian and Northern Affairs. And they ended up um, having hearings that went on for quite a long time to look at the best proposals for that the best way in order to do the cleanup, and that's when, of course, they realized that you couldn't actually clean it up. All you could do was contain it, and that's when they came up with the freeze wall. But they did manage to win um, a number of things, an oversight body, a form of independent environmental monitoring agency. They did win uh, a lot more money for it, and they also um, managed to, to get a, an agreement from the federal government that this would only be phase two and that research on how to actually clean up that arsenic trioxide would be uh, found. What they didn't win, and it's indicative of all this, is they did not win the apology to the Dene people that they wanted, to the Yellowknife's Dene, or compensation for them. And in fact, there's been a number of cases like that in Canada where people have wanted an apology and they haven't got it. Um, certainly the feds do the line there. So what about if you want to stop a mine before it starts? Well, there's a few things that a mine needs before it can go anywhere. It, it needs um, an ore body that's economic to mine. It needs access to capital in one way or another. Huge amounts. I mean, this is a totally different amount of money than you need to do an exploration project. We're talking billions. They need access to land. Uh, where the mine is and the supporting structure, so pipelines if you're talking fossil fuels, <laughs> if you're talking, if you're talking uh, mines, roads, rail, access to labor markets and the means to deliver them and regulatory approvals. And if you're trying to stop a mine, you try to make one of those the showstopper. That's what you do. So I'm going to just briefly tell you the story of the underground, Raven Underground Coal Mine um, on Vancouver Island. Uh, I had the, the privilege of working with people who were trying to stop the mine. That Most of Vancouver Island is coal, and so they've had a lot of experience with it. And there's still an operating mine, I think, at Cumberland, just north, north of Courtney. But over the, when the forestry industry collapsed, um, the people there had spent maybe a decade trying to come up with different ways to rejig their economy. What could they do? What kinds of of things could they create that would replace the forest industry. And they had, um, they had done all sorts of work. The coal mine was going to be built at Fanny Bay, which is here, where there was one of the biggest shellfish aquaculture industries in Canada. Fanny Bay oysters are famous everywhere. They were bringing in millions and millions of dollars a year for First Nations and uh, settler communities. They also are a retirement community, tourism is big, and the company was going to truck the, 
They were going to truck the, the coal over these mountains in the middle to, um, to Port Alberni, over here, and turn all Port Alberni into a coal port. Uh, it has a huge sports fishery. It's got um, all sorts of other things going on there. So they, they came up with alternative, they'd had alternative plans, and the company came in, it's a great place for a coal mine, and everybody went, what? <laughs> and the 250 jobs, um, they said a billion in GDP, but you never believe that. And it, they, they were going to do all this, and the people organized, and they organized around their alternate vision. So they, they first off, they did a whole lot of research and analysis, which they posted on a website they set up. They talked to everybody. They talked to everything from the Girl Guide Association to local businesses to local organizations. They got a lot of support from retired university professors out there, a lot of retired people with lots of skills. The First Nations asserted their title and responsibility um, for the land. Um, they, they pumped the, the, the vision of a new Provence, the other kind of economy that they wanted, um, got more and more promotion and they realized that they did studies on multiplier effects and so on and realized that it would bring in an awful lot more money than the coal mine ever would. And then they engaged in the proper channels. They would get so many people out to environmental assessments that the fire marshal often had to close the hall because there were so many people there. They, it became they, they captured the discourse around what mattered, and in fact, they won. They became, they became the first environmental assessment ever, mine ever turned down in the BC environmental assessment process. So that, that was huge. The story's in the book. And I just, I'm gonna just end my talk by saying that I think we need a new story. We need to put mining in its place. We still need metals. But we could get it, be getting a lot of them for recycle, reusing, and conserving. Certainly conserving. I mean, we know that recycling um, isn't going to be enough, but we do know that you can do a lot more. We could be remining tailings and landfills um, for the metals that we need. We can get as many metals often from recycling cell phones as we can from, from mining. Um, we have to make mining pay its full costs. And if most mines paid their full costs and had to pay their taxes and pay subsidies, a lot of them wouldn't be economic in the first place. Um, and so if they can't afford to do that, they shouldn't be operating. We need to develop truly sustainable economies. And I'd add to that that we shouldn't be mining gold, we shouldn't be mining diamonds, we shouldn't be mining coal, and we shouldn't be mining uranium. Um, these are all things that two, the last two harm us, and the first two aren't necessary. We've got all the gold we could ever use, and diamonds are completely artificially constructed value. And we need to heal the sacrifice zones, the places that have already been damaged, and there's an awful lot of work that be, could be created doing that. And I'm going to stop there and see if there's questions or comments or challenges. Thank you. Oh dear. 
So I, I get back to this issue of making mining and mining companies pay full costs. Um, if they are made to pay the full costs, then each one of us will have to pay much more. So if I think about this as the meta problem, we live in a capitalist system which is predicated for, on this bizarre concept of increasing rates of consumption. And all the studies on the circular economy and recycling show that we're not going to get away from an accelerating demand for metals such as copper uh, unless we move away from this capitalist idea yeah. of the increasing rate of consumption. And so if we don't move away from it, but if we tell the mining companies, well, we're, we're going to be held accountable for the true costs, um, unless as consumers we're willing to pay for the true costs. So you look at the price of copper now, under $3 a pound. Um, you look at the demand for copper, so every additional installed megawatt of wind energy mm -hmm. is going to require another ton to three tons of copper. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've got, after 30 years in this business, I've got the perspective that actually radical change, societal change is what's required. Yeah. We can't just point at the mining industry and say, do things differently, but we all want to live the same way. Well, I agree, and we can't. And I think I'd argue that we're actually paying for all these things now. They're just externalized. So they're paid in different ways. Like my kids and my grandchildren are going to have a hellhole of a world to live in if we don't change it. Well, it, it'll be all the taxpayers. I mean, every project you showed there yeah. would be absurdly low predictions of the financial assurance yeah. or environmental credits that yeah. are required. Uh, that's all going to be on future taxpayers. Well, there's, there's an, I've just said a conference this past weekend. Mining Watch had a big conference on the green economy. And there was, there was some really interesting presentations. But it's, just as an example, we pre most of the industry premises the need for metals on more uh, electric vehicles, private electric vehicles. If you were to take a completely different approach to that, you'd say, okay, we're not going to build more private electric vehicles. What we're going to do is make public transportation systems, which require a totally different thing. Each one of those electric vehicles will have a battery that gets thrown away. Well, no, we can actually reuse those batteries, reuse them for a long time. So there's, I, I don't think we're going to get out of this without massive state planning, quite frankly. I mean, there's no other way out of it. There's an awful lot of people who have been do, developing different ways of doing things, and we, we actually know how to do a lot of that. We know how to do a different kind of agriculture. We know how to do different kinds of transportation. But the, it's a question of uh, the political will around this, and that unless people who are, know what you know about this begin to say, this isn't going to work, we've got to do this differently, then we're, not gonna, we're doomed. I, I think that, that it's, that's the story, that unless we, unless we actually start taking charge of our governments and winning them back from the extractive industries, we're screwed. And that, that, anyway, there's some other questions, so if you don't mind, I think we should, yeah. So kind of building on that, okay, like good. if you yeah. do start to tax these big mining companies here, that makes our economy less attractive, and then, you know, I can't get a job, say, or whatnot, and then they just outsource it to the Congo, or to South America, 
Well, and they still extract from there. And then, like, what's the way around that? Do you know what I'm saying? It, if we do that, it, sure, it'll make it less attractive, but that hasn't stopped them in the past. And quite frankly, most of the reserves in Canada are pretty mined out anyway. And you know that. You know, the big reserves are gone. And they're not going to mine lithium here when they can try and get it by screwing over Bolivia. But I mean, in Canada, at least we have, like, environmental and social standards that are above. No, we don't. Countries. That's a myth. Really? Yeah, it's a myth. They're full of holes. Let me tell you, we have the mushiest environmental and social standards in probably the world. And, and it's because of the way the industry lobbies. What they do, the standards look great. They look just fabulous. But there's always little holes in them. Now, sometimes they're good because the people in the environmental community or the, you know, the, the tax justice people or something, they've been on their case so much they can't weasel out of them. But most of the time, most of the time, there's this huge bureaucratic management thing that goes on that ends up with the same result you'd have had if you didn't do it. And I know how the industry lobbies. They, they, people like Justina Laurie Lean from the mining industry spend all their time looking for the loopholes. When I started at Mining Watch, tailings and waste block were not in the National Pollutant Release Inventory. They said they weren't really waste. And that had been won over a coffee between Justina and a person from the ministry back when they were developing the NPRI. And that kind of thing happens all the time. So one of the difficulties of trying to change these things is actually getting rid of that discourse about how great it is. And it isn't. It isn't. Yeah? I wanted to like kind of lead in what you were saying. I totally agree. I think for me, uh, based off of personal and my research background, um, which looks at industry and looks at unvulnerable workforce like leaders, the question becomes, why can't we have a world where people have decent work and a decent environment? Because I think it goes right back. It's, it's, the, same, it's the same thing. I mean, the kind of economy and the kind of social system we've got is created out of colonialism. An expansion and, and uh, it continues today. That's that's why people in the Congo have the same kind of problems, but much worse. And uh, and and it is it's a political question. It's a question about how we take charge of our government, basically. Yes. So, so we have the system we have now, and we know we need changes. What would be a first step? You said you, you said make mining. We don't, as consumers, buy mined materials. We buy end products. When we buy those end products, even now, most of them come from China. China's standards for mining are uh, even, even perhaps more lax yeah. than our own. Do, do you think that if, if, um, if we don't, how do, how do we manage this on an international scale? I mean, you're, you're saying you think that, that deposits in Canada are largely mined out, so it, it, it will be a fading issue here. What about, what about in the rest of the world, and particularly uh, China, where most of our consumer goods come from? Well, you're asking absolutely huge questions, right? But it's, and that, it's yeah. a huge well, yeah. well, I, I do think that indivi you know individual consumption matters, but it's also the kind of um, industrial consumption is much much bigger, um, and and controlling 
and taxing and, and reducing subsidies are a big way to go. In many countries now, Canadian mining companies are creating havoc, just horrible havoc. And really, we should just get the heck out of there. Like, we should be getting the heck out of most indigenous communities where we want to mine. Canada's not helping, it's extracting. That's what it does. So, in, it, you, you're, what I'm talking about really is creating a political environment where people don't want and will fight the government over those kinds of extractive investments, that it st will stop subsidizing damaging, damaging projects, and that we will um, invest the money that we hopefully would get from taxation on, on projects like public transportation and, and other ways of doing things that build community and, and stop our sort of individual grab. I always want to say when people ask those things, who do you mean by we? Who's we here? You know, like that's, I think it's really important. We're not all we. Um, well, exactly. So what would you say to the indigenous communities that, that welcome uh, the prospect of a mine or the Well, I don't, I have to say, I don't think any of them welcome it. I think what happens is by their dis dispossession and impoverishment, they're desperate for it. And like any of the rest of us, indigenous people want to, you know, some of them want to get ahead and they'll take what, what's available. I mean, I think everybody in this room would probably say, I, I don't want to be plundering the planet. I don't want to be making a mess of things. I'd like to be able to help. But we, we, we set ourselves up so we, we set ourselves up so we don't reward that kind of behavior and instead we reward extraction and predatory behaviors. And those, that change is something a lot of people are working on. It's not as though you're starting tomorrow. You have to find the movements and the places where that's happening. I, I, the, the Green New Deal stuff has a lot of really good things going for it, and it certainly can't be predicated on, on individual EVs for everybody, right? But we need to work at home. That's where we can work. And I don't think... Um, most other places in the world will do better if we just left them alone, frankly. Yes? You mentioned um, the electric cars and the lithium batteries, and there's a mineral, I forget the exact name, but it's something like a medium. It's a, it, yeah. Uh, Canada in the Maritimes has, I think, 40 billion tons of it, and Bolivia has 80 billion tons of it. And other than that, it doesn't exist anywhere. And if, if they really push, if our society pushes for electric cars for everybody, it's going to make terrible chaos for Bolivia and this place in the Maritimes. It's but probably already been. That much of what you suggested, yeah. using more public transit is probably the right answer. Yeah. But I don't hear them pushing that. No, well, they're not. This is this battle. <laughs> Frankly, we're in a battle for the future of the planet, and you folks have to decide which side you're on. I mean, that's... And that's going to be done in different ways. It's going to be done in terms of, uh, you know, localized agriculture. It's going to be done in terms of pushing for public transit. It's going to be done through the kind of thing you know about engineering and how you can build safer tailings impoundments and how you can rejig them. I mean, there's a Michael Doggett, who most of you know here probably, um, his mining company was recently remining tailings in Bolivia. So you know, there's a whole different way of looking at this stuff, and and. Uh, and the predominant discourse is just going to basically just wreck it all for us. So we got to figure out 
we can't just say they are doing it. We, we've got a responsibility to do something ourselves, I think. Yes? Um, I was just curious in, like, in the aspect that we view kind of as a conflict and you have to choose sides. Is there a space, like let's say in Latin American communities, it's like life or death, like 160 million were killed in conflict with the extractive industries in Colombia in the last year. And it's like, if they're given a choice to enter in a disc course with the companies where they can take advantage and benefit like their communities and their social, if is meaningful, is there some sort of space to kind of shift the way business is done in partnership with communities in a way that there is like a need for electricity, clean drinking water, and these social economic problems that I know are a product of the, the colonial structures, but like, what is the space where it doesn't have to be well, one or the other? Well, I don't think the, in my mind, the mining company doesn't have the right to be part of that discussion. Our need for metals is separate from mining companies. Mining company is a structure that's developed to extract, to extract the minerals from the ground and to, to make money. Most people running mining companies aren't even miners. They're investment bankers. So what they're doing is funneling money from transforming the earth into a commodity, and then they're funneling that to, to their directors. So I don't think that you don't have the conversation with the mining companies, maybe with the miners and with the unions, because they've got a different interest. But I think that there's a really serious problem about treating a mining company as a legitimate stakeholder in this discussion. And well, I'm just curious, like if they're actually already on in the ground and there, like I understand in terms of like present or preventing. They're not well. Their interest is making money. That's why they're there. If the people are rebelling and making it hard for them, well, in Guerrero, there was a mining company that was, uh, was trying to, to build gold mines, and they had to pull out of Guerrero State in Mexico just because there was so much chaos. They couldn't do it. Right. So one of the biggest costs on their balance sheet is, is their social license. It's getting the right to do things. That's why they invest so much money in these social license discussions and towards sustainable mining and the International Council of Mines and Metals and global compact, blah, 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 it goes on and on, is because what they want is the social license to be a legitimate stakeholder in that place and to talk. And I'm saying a company isn't a person. I don't think they have the right to be there. And that's, you know, and frankly, we could probably undo most of it by making the directors of these companies responsible for the damage they cause. And, and, and as far as you know, our role in Latin America, Colombia, we wrote, our government rewrote the mining law for the mining industry. Um, and it got a lot worse. It sure didn't make anything better for the people on the ground. And a lot of what goes on in Colombia is that there's a lot of small-scale artisanal miners. I didn't talk about that here. There's 150 million people was the last day that I heard on it who are dependent on small-scale artisanal mining. And they're there because they're driven there by poverty. People don't choose to go out and work in those kind of conditions. They go because that's how they're going to support their families. That's a whole other discussion. And they're often just mining gold or diamonds. Now these days it's cobalt. But that's, um, that's a different discussion. OK? Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, Jamie. You use words like um, terrific and forever. Then you use the word do. Um, so I don't want to, let's put that aside because you get into a discussion that's demobilizing. Yeah. Could you tell the story of what happened when there was a big popular movement here in Canada to 
forced the federal government to have an ombudsperson uh, to monitor and control the activities of Canadian mine, Canadian-based mining corporations, basically, the ultimate demand would be to discipline capital on a global basis. Yeah. So it was a big effort to talk about that. I can talk, I'll talk briefly about okay. it. Yeah, big story. Uh, 20 years of struggle for nothing. <laughs> um, and, I mean, basically, what happened is people wanted to get Canadian mining companies under control, as you're asking. And they organized, um, Mining Watch was involved, and so were a number of the churches and development peace and the labor unions and a whole lot of other groups. And they, they managed to get the government interested enough that they held a series of round tables. And I just remember how Mining Watch is tiny. It's got a teeny tiny staff. And we were just completely driven nuts by this process and bringing our partners to the country and Development of Peace was doing it and Interparis and all sorts of other groups. They, at one point, they had 500,000 people sign postcards to send to the government demanding that they, they legislate the control of Canadian mining companies operating overseas. A private member's bill was brought in by John McKay, a liberal. It was voted down by four votes um, in the House of Commons. And after that, it, it, the movement became more of a, the Canadian Network of Corporate Accountability was set up and it continued to you know, harass the government around this and go after public funding for Canadian mining companies operating overseas. And after three or four iterations, the government announced its, uh, its response in January, I think it was. And they appointed an ombudsperson to allow Canadian mining companies to try and regulate Canadian mining companies, but she has no power. Um, basically, she can't subpoena witnesses, she can't um, make decisions about what's going to happen, and she can't do anything about, um, about public funding. So it's basically nothing, and it's public. In fact, she came to the Mining Watch conference, and she, was stand she wasn't there for long. And I looked over, and she there's the Mining Watch bullet uh, banner, and she's standing beside it, and her picture is being taken. That was her contribution. <laughs> yep. So you say how the mining industry in Canada is completely unregulated and isn't... I'm not, I'm not saying completely. So I'm curious what you think mining is always going to be a requirement. We're never not going to need more metals, especially with the increase in demand and increasing population and the way technologies are moving. You're always going to need these metals. There is a lot of regulation in Canada as far as compliance with um, Section 35 of the Constitution Act when uh, engaging with Indigenous communities and requirements to oblige by treaties that have been in place previously and then the number of environmental assessment uh, requirements both pre-mining and post-mining as far as reclamation goes within reason because we always will need mining in Canada because of the abundance of resources that we have. What do you recommend is the next step if you want to see such an improvement in the industry? Well, I, first off, I don't agree with everything you said, and you're exaggerating what I said. But the, the I put about here. That's what I think. I think we need to be certainly making sure that we recycle, reuse, and treasure the metals that we've got. We throw them away. If you mine landfills, you'll get enough gold for any of, the, any of those uses. 
Copper may be another issue, but before we start mining more copper, I would suggest that we should be mining some landfills. Um, but, but we also could very much be, um, be looking at what those uses they're for. There was a big study done by the, the industry itself um, called the Mines, Minerals, and Sustainable Development Initiative. It was led by Rio Tinto in 2003, I think, they published their report. And one of the things they said in the North American division of that is that what we needed first of all was to ask what the need and purpose of a project was. And that if we didn't, the need and purpose of any mining project, and if we, is it being built for things that we really need? Could, it be, could the metal be obtained from somewhere else? The, generally speaking, the need and purpose in environmental assessment in Canada is based on the company saying, um, I need to mine more gold or I need to mine more copper. There's no evaluation of that. And I think that even that recommendation, if it were followed through an environmental assessment, we'd have to push like heck for it because they've just amended the act and made it worse. Um, it, would, it would make a big, big difference. We really need to ask what the need and purpose of what we're doing is. And uh, there's no magic bullets. It's going to take a whole lot of different work and different ways of doing it. Yes, we need metals, but can we get them elsewhere? Do we really need metals for, for more EVs, or can we find a way to, to do it differently? Like Those are the kind of questions we have to ask. And the first step is to be asking those questions, I think. And I just to build on the first comment, which is how do you factor in the cost that you need to factor in? Because that really is the yeah. As long as we're a capitalist society, that's what you have to do. And so how do you make someone pay for what they want to do for the water, due to the water, due to the air, due to the land? And for most mines, you know, they're comfortable. The mining they typically do in the cheapest way possible, which is definitely open pit, which is also the messiest way possible. But it's cheapest because they're not forced to pay you for what they're doing in the land, the air, and the soil, and the water. If you make them pay for all those things, whether it's through you know, variations of carbon tax, and water tax, and air tax, or regulation, just saying, look, there's two ways you can do something. One makes a mess of the water, one doesn't. Like, you know, the, in, in the mining industry, the solution to pollution is dilution. So I mean, what that means is, you know, if the, if the legal level for something is one part per million, You've got one part of it. You're going to add a million parts of water to that, and say it's no longer it's no yeah. longer over that limit. That's what they do. So that's why you end up with a lot of these huge, messy ponds and everything. And it's not just the mining industry; every business does that. If you basically say, "Look, you're going to use a technique that doesn't do that," where rather than having these waste products, you're going to create byproducts and make them into something useful, put it in your process. You can do that, but it might double or triple the cost. Of but you know the technology is all there. To said it's not there, there's lots of people in the universities who develop it. But it'll only happen in the capitalist system to say, look, you either have regulations saying you got to do it that way, or you have a cost saying, well, if you want to pollute the air, here's the cost, knowing that the alternative is made cheaper. And the other thing, though, you know, when people say the cost, and, and again, I think original point that you know, ultimately the consumers will pay. But you need to understand how much you're going to pay. Like, what do you think the value of the minerals are in your cell phone? According to the industry, you know, there's 30 to 40 minerals in a cell phone. The total cost of all the minerals in a cell phone is under a dollar. So if you triple the cost of mineral extraction, that's going to raise your phone by three dollars. 
It costs you your phone and the big costs are intellectual property, so what you're paying for the technology, not the know-how, mm. and advertising. And that makes you know, 99% of the cost of the phone. So, and, and that's true for most products. Like when copper prices triple, you know, your house prices aren't going to triple. It's going to go up a little bit because there's copper in your house or copper in your car. But the bigger costs are not are not the middle. The bigger costs are labor, you know, land values, and a lot of other things. So as consumers, you've got to start demanding and say, look, we want to buy from and we want to know what's the source of the minerals in our phone. We want to know they're coming from a source that isn't in a conflict zone that where they're mining it properly. And as a consumer, you can empower yourself that way. But, you know, do I want to work it that way to tackle a system where you accept the fact that if we keep going the way we're going, there's going to be a revolution and we will get to having a total government control economy as the only other solution to that is. Because consumers, you all want to demand that what companies should have to pay for what they're doing here. Thanks, Jessica. Okay, so I just I'm going to end. I've got four books there. They're twenty bucks each if you want to buy them. So see me. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. 